are you tonight? So great to see you all. Wait a second. How's it going, everybody? All right. Hey, we've got daylight savings time kind of feel. Everybody feel rested, extra rested? Or is it worn off already? The extra hour, a couple of people yawning. Well, hey, uh, however your sleep level has regulated at this point, we're just happy to see all of you here. And we want to welcome everyone who will be uh, watching this uh, from the internet at some point in the future. Uh, and tonight we are in our final session of a four-part series on the Bible and sexuality and all of the issues that are seemingly hitting us every single day in culture, uh, at work, at school, in, 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 in just everyday society here in Roseburg and beyond and all the media. So many questions, so many changes, so much happening, and yet the Bible has a ton to say about this big thing called sex. And tonight, uh, AJ is going to be talking about developing a biblical worldview about sexuality, which is in a sense what we have been doing uh, for this whole, this whole series throughout the year. Uh, and we're going to continue in that vein. And then uh, what we're going to do tonight is, format-wise, is have AJ lecture for about 50 to 60 minutes and then we're going to have some question and response time or Q&R uh, time. Uh, or if we were in Canada, it would be Q&A. So um, that's what's going to happen. And uh, both AJ and I will be, will be up at the Q&R time. So I just ask you to be gentle on me when you ask your questions. Uh, and mostly AJ will answer. So... Without further ado, let's give AJ a big round of applause and welcome him to the stage. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you, brother. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so gracious. And I, I want to say, too, um, uh, let's, let's just acknowledge uh, this to the elders and the, uh, the pastoral staff. It's gutsy. It's gutsy to host these conversations. And you, you've done this, and we're really grateful. So thank you, Pastor Billy, for your fearless leadership and entrusting us to, to do this. Yeah. Hmm. Um, we want to we want to take some time tonight to uh, have our final uh, final session, um, and in order to accomplish what we want to do tonight, I got to do a couple orienting things here just uh, just to set the table. Um, the first is, as you walked in here, you should have received a little piece of paper. Um, this yes, you got it there. Good, thank you for waving it for me. Uh, by the way, Abby, happy birthday! Happy birthday! I think it was yesterday, was it? On the third. But happy birthday. All right, we'll see you later. Okay, all right. Um, it, it is, it is, it's undeniably, it's, it's almost wrong um, to think that four one and a half hour sessions can cover the complexity of human sexuality and gender. Um, it, it almost, I've actually a couple times driven home and just felt like, I almost felt like I was lying to you um, in the sense that I, I walked away and there have been times, I don't mean that I've been lying to you, but there have been, okay, thank you. <laughs> what I mean is, as a teacher, I've had multiple teachers say this to me, when you teach, sometimes you walk away from a session and just feel like there's so much more that needs to be said. And you feel like, gosh, I just, I feel like it's deeper than we ever could do. There's no way, four sessions. I teach 16, a 16-week 16, a 16 class on this stuff and we just scratch the surface then. 
So here's why I, what I did here uh, is I printed up, this is basically one page of what is like a 40 page syllabus that I have. Um, and I've given you one page here. And basically what this is, for anybody in the room that after we're all done tonight, you're just dying to go read more, watch more, dig in more. I've given you a number of resources here that are broken down in three major categories. The first is um, what I simply call sexual theology, which is um, just basically a biblical, a, a robust, historically Christian perspective on human sexuality. There's a number of books there that I would recommend uh, for you to go uh, for you to go and read that are really helpful. Um, and actually, of the ones that are mentioned there, probably the most helpful one, if you're a podcast listener, um, is right in the middle is a podcast uh, called Theology in the Raw by my friend Preston Sprinkle. He is committed 100% to the historic Christian understanding of human sexuality, and he's just wildly conversant in understanding the complex issues. Um, just a simple listen to his podcast. I think he's got like 900 episodes um, you'd find to, to be very helpful. Um, uh, in terms of theo theology of sex and marriage, uh, I, I put a couple of books there. A really, actually, really helpful book. My friend John Mark Comer wrote a book called Loveology that I found to be really helpful that I think you might as well. And then a number of the ones in same-sex sexuality and transgenderism uh, that you may find to be uh, really helpful. Um, I, I do want to just mention um, uh, on, on, the, on the gender front, I think it's worthy of mentioning. In our conversation tonight, um, we're, we're not going to directly deal with uh, the transgender conversation, largely because... Um, um, I, almost, I almost feel like the right thing to do is just, you need to go read this book and, and, and this will give you a, a much better perspective. Um, and, and that is, um, Preston Sprinkle wrote a book called Embodied and it is, in my opinion, hands down, uh, the best book. It was written just two years ago, three years ago. It is the best biblical, compassionate response to understanding transgender issues. Um, for many of you, you have got, you've got grandkids, you've got kids. Uh, some of you have experienced gender dysphoria and you're wondering, you know, am I in the... Feel the sense of like I'm being torn between these two uh, realities or something like that. Um, and, and I, I just want to say uh, one book you need to read is, is, is uh, a book called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. And then a, 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 actually a psychologist who is a Christian who writes about transgen transgender things, a guy named Mark Yarhouse, Y-A-R-H-O-O-U-S-E. He is absolutely phenomenal on this topic, Mark Yarhouse, that I encourage you to go uh, engage in those, in, the, in those from this point forward, okay? So I, is this helpful just to give you some resources? I, I know I promised this. Some of them are actually videos, so you have to look them up. Um, so sorry about that because I can't put links on paper. But um, uh, yeah, those are, those are all there. So let's um, also... Um, I, I want to give a brief reference before we dig into our content tonight. Just talk a little bit about how we're going to do the Q&R. Um, I, I invited Billy, and this is very intentional. It's not a mistake. It's not for lack of content. Let me tell you that. Um, I wanted Billy uh, to come up uh, at the end for our Q&R question time because I want uh, us to have an opportunity to create a space for a pastoral response to some of the questions that we're wrestling with. In fact, as I walked on in, I was given a question by somebody uh, who just needs, needs something to be addressed, but it's a scary thing to ask a question. And I wanted a pastoral, I wanted Billy to come up. He's, Billy's just a, 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 an inc incredible pastor, friends. And I want him to be able to respond with me to some of the questions that you might have. So he's gonna come up at the end, last 40 minutes or so, 35 minutes, we're gonna do that. Um, 
And, the, and then the last thing I wanna mention is I, I simply just wanna say, uh, get, review kind of where we've come from. So <laughs> a year ago, <laughs> uh, a year ago when we had our first session, our first session was on a theology of sexuality. So we basically looked at, you know, this was you know, 10 months ago or whatever it was, nine months ago. Maybe it wasn't a full year, I don't remember. But it was our first conversation was a theology of sexuality. So we wrestled out, what does the Bible say about sexuality? What is sex all about? Why did God create it? And we looked at the creation story, uh, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, in, week two, in the second week, we looked at a theology of marriage. And because ultimately to understand uh, what, what the Bible has to say about sexual sin, you gotta look at the point of marriage. So we took time to talk about marriage, singleness, and what the, the idea of marriage is. Week three, uh, we talked about uh, sexual sin. And so that was where I encourage you to go watch it. We talked about what the Bible has to say about same-sex uh, sexuality, uh, what the Bible talks about, um, you know, uh, sort of, uh, exp- humans that have experiences of same-sex attraction. What do we do with, uh, with things like uh, adultery, these sorts of things? Uh, sexual sin was week three. Today, what we're gonna talk about today is we are gonna, we are gonna basically cast a vision for how do, how do we move forward? How do we move forward to constantly be growing in God's design for our human, uh, uh, for human sexuality. I, I wanna, it's a, it's a weird title, but I hope by the time we're done it'll make sense. And that is, I wanna talk about developing a sexual worldview. I wanna talk about developing a sexual worldview. We're gonna look at 1 Corinthians 6, and we're gonna spend some time and wrestle with a, with a really core text of, of Paul here. So I'd love, could, could you could get your Bible out? And, and what, could we pray? How's that sound? Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, I think that we'd be dumb not to pray. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pray, let's pray. God, as we start tonight, um, this is conversation four, and I know some of us have been in the room now for four sessions, and they've invested time and energy because they're here and they're hungry. Um, And I wanna pray that you would bless whoever's come back or maybe here for the first time, that you would bless them for their their guts to be here. And uh, also want to ask for us to just cultivate in our own hearts Cultivate a sense of deep conviction about, God, what you have said, and simultaneously cultivate a deep sense of compassion and love that, God, we would resemble the grace and the truth of God. Hold faithfully to the the Bible and what scripture has spoken and also remain compassionate and loving towards the people that we care deeply about. And so tonight, we just, we plead for your grace and your mercy for our conversation this evening and that fruit would come out of it in this final conversation that we are gonna have. We love you, Jesus. Would you say amen? Amen, amen, terrific. First Corinthians chapter six. I mean, I'm gonna read to you uh, this little section at the very end of uh, this, uh, this middle portion of, uh, of, of Paul's letter to the church in uh, uh, church in Corinth. A, a little context here before I read the, the, the text to you in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, when you and I read uh, the New Testament, um, when you and I read the New Testament, it's easy to believe, right? Because we've got two letters, 1st and 2nd, 1 and 2 Corinthians. When you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's easy to sort of assume uh, that Paul only read, wrote two letters to this church in Corinth. Um, but what's weird about the letters of, of Paul to Corinth is it's, there's, there's evidence that by the time he's actually written 1 Corinthians, he's already written a letter to them. Um, in fact, um, New Testament scholars, when you look in some, uh, there, there's evidence that apparently, we have two, uh, but there were in total something like five letters that Paul wrote to this church. 
Now, and you go, you go that, that's a lot of letters. I, that's more letters than I've written to my dad, for heaven's sake. I mean, I'm not very good at writing letters. I don't know about you. My generation's not, we're good at text. We're not good at letters. Um, but for Paul to write five letters to somebody, keep in mind, Paul was not a guy who had a lot of like free time. Between uh, being thrown into the middle of the city and having people try to stone him and kill him to being thrown in prison, to having lions eat him, he's a pretty busy guy. A lot going on. And evidence is that he wrote more letters to this church than any other church. And, And why that's important is what we are about to read for Paul is birthed out of a deep pastoral heart for this community. Um, This church in Corinth was one that he himself started. Paul knew these people. He knew the city very well. Uh, He knew Corinth very well. Um, Actually, of all the the cities that Paul would have spent time in, he probably spent more time in Corinth than any other city. Our best guess is about two and a half years. Most of the time, Paul would start a church and leave right away. But here he spent nearly 2.5 years or even three years in Corinth. So he spent a lot of time in the city of Corinth, a lot of time in the city of Corinth. And Corinth was an interesting city. Um, <clears throat> we know a few things about, uh, about the ancient city of Corinth. It was a very religious city, very spiritual city. Actually, by the time we're done here, I'm gonna tell you just a little, little cool little thing about head coverings and why Paul would have said that the women in the church should cover their heads. Um, we know that the ancient city of Corinth was very spiritual. You have a number of temples to a number of different gods. Uh, the Roman pantheon had many, many, many gods, and there uh, are at least seven temples to various gods in Corinth. So it's a, it's a very spiritual city. There's no such thing, by the way, as a secular city in the ancient world. Everybody was spiritual. So by the time Paul writes these letters, right, he's writing to communities that are very spiritual communities, people that believed in all sorts of things. Um, we also know that it was, a, it was like a Renaissance city. Of all things, it's interesting. Uh, Corinth was known for two things in the ancient world. It was known first for its sexuality. In a way, it was sort of the, the Vegas of the ancient world. It was, it was very libertine. Uh, it was a, a place where you could go and pretty much find just about every sexual exploit that you could think of. It was very common in Corinth where you would have uh, actually adult ch- child uh, human sexual relationships, uh, obviously sexual relationships of coercion, uh, essentially sex slavery. But oddly enough, um, it was also known, uh, Corinth was known of all things. It was known for its sexuality. Uh, in fact, there is a, an ancient Greek word, Corinthasasestai, Corinthasasasthai, is that a great word? Kind of, it's a gross word. But it means literally, Corinthasasasthai, do you hear the word Corinth in there? Corinthasasasthai literally means to be sexually loose. So the city was known for just being this like party city. And ironically, Corinth was also known for one other thing. It was known for its bagels. (laughs) That's a weird thing to be known for, is to be known for sex and bagels. It's a weird combo, weird combo. Um, I lived in Portland for quite some time, and it's known in many respects for sex and donuts. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, I mean, I'm, I'm not jabbing my old city, I love Portland, but um, in a lot of ways, a city like Portland would reflect kind of what, you and I, what, what the ancient city of Corinth would be like. It was a place where you were free to be and do what you want to do. And so by the time Paul writes this, this, this letter, he, he not only, he's very passionate about this church, But it shouldn't shock us how much Paul talks about sex in his letters to the church in Corinth. 
because he knew, Paul knew, that something grave was at stake with this church. That to be a Christian, to be a Christian, among other things, to be a Christian was to be different than the city you were in. 1 Corinthians 6. And actually, let me pull the screen up here so we've all got a chance to see it uh, right up here. So this is in the middle, uh, beginning in verse 12. Paul says this. I have the right to do anything, you say. <laughs> and notice here, just before we continue, do you notice Paul is quoting something? Uh, he's quoting something. Uh, somebody has written and said, well, we have the right to do anything. He's quoting them back to them. By the way, when Paul ever quotes you to you, you're in trouble. <laughs> I have the right to do anything, you say. Hmm. Hmm. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I won't be mastered by anything. You say, this is the third time he quotes them, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. He's, again, he's quoting them. He says, but, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality. The Greek word that he uses here is porneia, which we talked about. It's any expression of human sexuality outside the context of a male-female covenantal marriage. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, for porneia. It is meant for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Now, there, there's a whole, by the way, a whole cottage industry of debate about this one line right here because it seems to suggest for Paul that in the church in Corinth, there have been members in the church who have been sleeping with a prostitute. He actually mentions at another point in the letter, he says, you guys do things sexually that even the Romans think is wrong. So just keep in mind, he's writing to Christians. He's not writing to a secular audience out there. He's writing to Christians. Shall I then take the members of Christ, you, and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. What, what's he quoting here? He's quoting Genesis 1 and 2. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Verse 18. Flee, flee. Uh, Paul uses the word here, fuego, when you think en fuego. Fuego, fuego, flee sexual immorality. Run away from porneia. Run away, run away. Because all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 
In this little just, man, what are we looking at here? We're looking at eight verses. Paul is writing to a church that is clearly, there, there is some stuff going on in this church that is not okay. Paul is gonna write a number of letters because what is happening here is for Paul so important. This is make it or break it stuff for Paul. What we wanna talk about tonight is we wanna talk about how do we, moving forward, take what Paul has just said here and develop an appropriate understanding of human sexuality in, in a really complex, complex scenario that we live in today. Uh, in fact, I was just, Billy, is it okay if I just share a little bit from our time between, I, I, I had the opportunity to go. If, you, if you've never taken a nap at Billy's house, um, I was, need I say more? There is, there is a, a bed upstairs that is phenomenal. We were, for the better part of an hour, Christy, Billy, and myself were just talking about uh, some of the complex realities that as a church you're facing. Um, because what, what happens, friends, what happens as a community? Um, for example, what happens when, it, when it's discovered that a leader in the church um, has been having you know, an extramarital adulterous affair? Like, what do we do with that? Um, is, what, what do we do if, if, if a Christian leader who, who leads in, in ministry here is discovered to be addicted to pornography? What do we do with that? What do we do if a kid comes and meets Jesus here and they're trans? Do, do you as leaders have a responsibility to call a child who comes to, our community, comes to your community by their preferred pronoun or should you resist that because you don't, you don't want to embolden and empower what you believe to be something that is not true about the person? I mean, we were just for, for one hour talking about this stuff. And it was complex. It was interesting. Even Christy and Billy were kind of like, I don't know if I agree with you on that. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I agree with either of you on that. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was kind of, it was, I mean, we, we're all gracious with each other and love each other dearly, but can you all, all of a sudden just feel the anxiety in your body rising? Like, like what do we do? What do we do? And I, I just want to acknowledge that <laughs> these are complex things. And, and I, wish, I, I wish, gosh, it would have been great if Paul had written a whole letter about how to do youth ministry in a transgender culture. I was like, Paul, could you write that? And he never wrote that. And, and here's the deal, actually. It's really dangerous for Christians. I, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm very convinced about this. It's very dangerous when you and I overstep what the Bible has revealed. Like, we don't get to overstep what Scripture has spoken and the minute you and I start creating laws that God never laid down, we actually start doing more damage than we do good. Our job is not to be faithful to the text that we think is there. Our job is to be faithful to the Bible and what it, what it says. Um, I, I, let me give you, just, just to give you a sense of how complex this stuff is, when you're a pastor and you're walking with somebody, uh, years ago, uh, I had a, a young man who was a part of my college ministry who uh, began the transition of becoming a woman. And he, for years, I had been pastoring incredible, incredible young man. I loved him. I love him. And his journey of transitioning was so complex and so painful and so difficult because I was constantly feeling like if I make the wrong decision, he's just gonna cut me off entirely. 
And, but, if I, but if I say the, 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 uh, the, on the other side, then he's gonna think like, I'm cool with everything. It was just like, I felt, I had this general sense, like it just felt like there was nothing I could do that was right. Have you felt that before? Um, I, I've been recently doing a, a series of teachings at a church up in Portland and uh, on, on sexuality. We've been doing a number of, of lectures, some kind of similar lectures. And so I was at this church, incredible community. And I do the first, the first lecture and sitting in the front row, sitting in the front row um, are these two young women, probably 22, 23 year old women. And I, I just noticed they were sitting next to each other and I just got the sense that they were together. And after the service, I just said, hey, can you tell me about that couple right there, those, those two young women, it's the heart of Portland. And th- this, th- th- the story was these two young women um, it was a lesbian couple and they had met Jesus at the church, radically got saved, both of them, got baptized and they were about to get married and they got saved and they both sensed Jesus tell them, don't get married. And they were in the journey, literally, and this, this is just a couple months ago, they are in the journey of ending their romantic relationship and they are trying to figure out what it's gonna be like just to be friends. I can tell you, when you're pastoring that couple, when you're walking a couple through that, wouldn't it be just so great to just say like, there's clear, everything's perfect. Friends, it's messy, it's painful, but friends, they are walking the walk. That is beautiful to me. Uh, a friend of mine who's a missionary overseas uh, tells the story that um, there are actually a number of spaces where polyg- uh, uh, there's polygamous cultures where people marry, more than one person marries, um, uh, one person marries multiple women. And in this particular polygamous culture, which is in uh, 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 Papua New Guinea, when, when a family gets saved, when a family gets saved, it raises a big issue because if the man leaves his eight wives or nine wives, if the whole family gets saved, the seven wives that have been left are left without any kind of welfare care. And so the question becomes for this missionary, like when a family gets saved, what do you do? Do you just tell the man that he's supposed to leave all of his, all of his wives except for one and leave literally their 10 to 20 children without somebody to care for them? What do you do? And by the way, I'm not gonna tell you any answer because I don't know. I'm not a missionary in Papua New Guinea. I'm struggling just living in Eugene for heaven's sake. I'm gonna tell you folks, I'm gonna tell you, here's why I'm doing this, here's why I'm starting with this. Every single one of us must enter these complex pastoral situations with an insane amount of grace and patience because this is messy stuff. But make no, make no bones about it. The goal is that everyone would follow Jesus and leave a life of sin. Make no bones about it. But the process to get there it's messy. Here's the problem. <clears throat> For many of us, and, and this is, Paul's gonna do three things here. Actually, let me, I should show you the, the lead-in slide before I show you a bunch of really bad bumper stickers. <clears throat> Paul's gonna do three things here um, in, in 1 Corinthians 6. I'm setting the complexity up, but now I wanna bring Paul in because Paul here is gonna do three things that are just critical for us. The first thing Paul's gonna do is he's gonna tackle some really bad thinking. I like to call it unredeemed thinking. He is going to tackle some thinking in the church that has gotten bad. Secondly, Paul is going to help the church develop a vision of what I call sexual formation. 
And that is a lifelong journey of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for us to be unendingly transformed into the image of Christ. And thirdly, Paul is going to build for us what I like to call a communal ethic. And that is to say that actually human sexuality is not just an individual thing. It is actually a part of a broader community. And that actually, for many Westerners, we think, you know, I can do this sexually over here and it's not gonna affect everybody else. If you are Paul, you are building your life on a lie because sexuality affects everything. So he's gonna outline this. Let's, let's tackle the first one here. And that is, one of the things Paul's gonna do, and you saw it, is Paul tackles a bunch of really bad ideas. He actually quotes the Corinthians back to the Corinthians. Um, I, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of really bad bumper stickers. And if I show one that you have on your car, it's not, I, I didn't like pull this out as I was coming in, I saw your car, and I was like, I gotta put that on the screen. Um, I just wanna show you some bad bumper stickers. Um, this, 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 this one drives me mad. I've seen this a lot. God doesn't believe in atheists. I don't even know what that, what, is that, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? I, an atheist doesn't believe in God, is a human being. God loves the atheist. I, I get it, it's a, it's a little poke. But here's the thing that drives me mad, is that whoever has made this bumper sticker put a Bible verse next to it. As though this is a quotation from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We have a word for this. This is just bad theology. And if you got the bumper sticker, I'm sorry. Here's another one. No, he's not. Jesus is not a drug. He's the Lord of the universe. To compare Jesus to a drug... These are real folks. <laughs> Welcome to the real world. This next one, this next one just, it hits a really soft spot in my heart. Okay, no, no, don't, don't get mad at me. These are your bumper stickers, or at least they're ours. We have collective problems here. Why do I show you a bunch of bumper stickers? And I could give you a bunch more. P part of being a Christian, part of being a Christian is, is that you and I become discerning enough and knowledgeable enough about what is true and what God has said to be able to say when something is just bad bumper sticker theology, to call it for what it is. And, and that is to say, a part of being a Christian is, is knowing God's word well enough to be able to call stuff for what it is. I, I would invite you, if, if these four weeks of talking about theology have not inspired you to talk about theology more, I can't impress upon you enough how important theology is. We build our lives on it. Now, now I, bring, I bring that up because when Paul writes this letter, one of the main things he's gonna do is he wants to tackle some really bad thinking. In fact, um, cliche, it's interesting. It, the problem with cliche is cliche is often partly right. 
It's not that cliche is always totally wrong. It's that it's partly right. There's actually a cliche, which is, I call it half-baked truth. Is, is a cliche is like, a, a, it's not a well thought through thing. It's just like, eh, there's some, I guess there's a little bit of truth to that, but that's just cliche. There's actually a really interesting little section in Ezekiel 18. When God comes to Israel through Ezekiel and confronts one of the cliches they've been saying to themselves, he says this, he says, what do, he, this is God speaking. You, you, <laughs> he says, what do you people, whatever God says, you people, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel that the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on the edge? As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb. <laughs> what is God doing? He's confronting a bad bumper sticker. And he's saying, if you're gonna be my people, if you're gonna be my people, your thinking needs to be deeper than a bumper sticker. We got a lot of cliches. I have a running list on my computer that I keep. I'll just give you a few. Uh, a few cliches that we use that I would just say, think, think about it a little bit. All sins are the same before God. We say that all the time. It, it actually isn't all the same before God. Um, we're, we're told that when Jesus is taken before the cross and Pontius Pilate says, you know, I'm bringing forward, and Jesus says um, that, um, that the one who, who, who handed me over to you committed a greater sin. Sin is not all the same before God. There are some sins that have deeper weight before God. We hear this one, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. I don't like that quote. I'm gonna tell you why I don't like that quote. Be because basically what that can mean for some people is I should never talk about Jesus. No, you should talk about Jesus all the time in the right moment. I preach Jesus all the time, not just with my words, but with my mouth. Love the sinner, hate the sin. That's a, that's a tricky one. And it's tricky, especially when you're talking to a gay or lesbian person, when their sexuality is their identity. Because when you say that quote, what you're really saying is that I hate you for your identity because your sin has become what you are. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying you, you gotta be deep when you think about this stuff. Everything happens for a reason. I don't know if it does. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about the meaninglessness, that the world is filled with the sense of, like, it's just perplexing. It doesn't always make sense. Yes, God is going to accomplish everything for his purposes. But when you say everything happens for a reason, friends, if you get cancer or a child dies of cancer, is that just your way of saying God took your child's life? That's not... Friends, friends, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say, your and my job as Christians is to go deeper than bumper stickers and cliches. And when Paul writes this letter, he, notice, he has three things that he wants to say to him. You guys have built your understanding on sexuality on some bad ideas. And, he's, and he names them. And here's what he says. There's three of them. The first one is he says, you guys have been saying, I have the right to do anything. So basically the sense of, I, I have the right, it's my body, I can do what I want with my body. It's mine, God gave it to me. By the way, these are Christians speaking. I have the right to my body. You don't, have, you don't get to tell me what to do. I have the right, he quotes to them. And then he quotes verse 13, he says, you also say food for the body, body for the food, and God will destroy them both. You're telling yourself, basically, you're telling yourself, what I do with my body doesn't matter because it's gonna be destroyed. You think that you can do whatever you want because you're gonna die and it will all end. Video game won't be over. 
and it won't matter. And Paul also says in the next chapter that some are saying it is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with, with a woman. He quotes a third thing in 1 Corinthians 7, which we didn't get to. And he quotes these things back, basically a person saying, it's, it's, not, good, it's not good to be married, you shouldn't get married, be a, be, kind of pull away from marriage, don't, don't be a sexual being. He, he takes these three ideas and he speaks it back to the church. Here's what, I want you to see this. At the very bottom, I put this here. First of all, I, wanna, I just want to point out to you, isn't it interesting that Paul knew how culture and how people were thinking about sexuality? He knew it. Let me translate that. Paul did his homework. He did not put his head in the sand and pretend like he shouldn't know what was going on in the church, in the churches and in culture. He had done his work. Not only does he know what people think, he knows their arguments, he also knows how to dismantle their arguments. Let, let me, I guess, let me, let me translate for, for, for you what that means. If you are a Christian who lives in this room, at, you don't live in the room, but if you're a Christian today in the 21st century, friends, it is incumbent upon you as a follower of Jesus to at base level Know what our culture thinks about sexuality because if you don't know what it thinks, then you have no way to address it. Paul is a master cultural exegete. He knows culture. As a Christian, it, it is incumbent upon us to actually know what our culture thinks. By the way, to learn from our culture does not mean you agree with it. I heard I had somebody say to me once, they said, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't serve, you know, serve, when you serve somebody, doesn't that mean you agree with them? I say, like, Jesus washed Judas' feet the night before he was crucified. To serve somebody doesn't mean you agree with them. Jesus serves me all the time and he never agrees with me. <laughs> Just to learn about culture doesn't mean you agree with culture. I think Paul is teaching Christians that part of living in a complex world is that you pay attention. It is easy, I get it folks, it is easy to want to hide your head in the sand and just pretend, you know, I'm gonna live in this bubble, I'm gonna live here and I'm gonna live around my friends and I'm, and I'm just gonna live here and I'm not gonna address the issues. And I want, I guess, church, I want to press you in the name of Jesus. The church is not called to pull away. We are salt and we are light. Paul refuses to pull away. He knows their arguments and he knows how to respond to those arguments. Paul wants us to develop deep awareness of what is happening in our world because the very people who have the truth of the gospel, friends, we have the truth of the gospel. The hope that saves humans from hell and darkness. May it be that we are found in this moment in time, not as being good at living in a bubble, but we are engaged. It got quiet. How are we doing?
Friends, there are a lot. These, by the way, these three quotes, if you could translate them, but what do they mean? Um, they, these are attitudes that I see all the time in my world. I have the right to do anything. You know what that is? Entitlement. This is my body. I will do what I want to do with my body, and you don't get to tell me what to do with my body. That is called entitlement. And by the way, I see it in the church, and I see it outside the church. This is why Paul ends this letter by saying, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You are not your own. He is confronting bumper sticker theology. When they say, you know, uh, food for the body, body for the food, God will destroy them both. He is confronting a whole set of ideas we call Gnosticism, which basically means, you know, what I do in the body doesn't matter because I'm just gonna die and I'm just gonna go and it's not gonna matter. And Paul's gonna say, absolutely not. You are gonna be a resurrected being. And by the way, you are going to face the God of the universe someday and give an account. Don't live in such a way where you think I get to do what I want here and it's all gonna end and I'm not gonna give an account. No, 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 no. You will give an account and so will I. The very first thing the devil denies in Genesis 3 is he says, you will not die. He's basically saying, no judgment. You do you. And Paul wants to confront that. He says, no. And then there's gonna be some people who are gonna say, well, then we should just pull away from all things. It's not good for people to get married. Maybe we should just get, not get married. And Paul wants to even say that is hot garbage. He wants to say, no, the goal is not that you don't have desires or sexuality. The goal is that you do it the right way. It's interesting, by the way, I put it down here. Six times in this one chapter, six times, Paul says the phrase, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Because friends, it is critical that we think rightly. There is a lot of bad theology. When I was in Bible college, it was said that when you went to my Bible college, you would get married ring by spring or your money back. <laughs> I ain't kidding. I ain't kidding. And I gotta tell you, that's bad theology. That is bad theology. Uh, Caitlin Beatty calls that the sexual prosperity gospel. And it's the idea, folks, that if you follow Jesus, you get the perfect marriage at the right time. That is bad theology. Are you just trying to keep gay people and lesbian people from being happy? You're trying to keep us from marriage. You're just trying to keep us from being happy. And, and I understand this question. And there's a whole, there's a whole argument to be made that, that you, you Christians are just trying to keep people away from happiness. And, and I understand. I'm so sympathetic. But I also want to say this, that the gospel of Jesus and the hope of the Christian gospel is not primarily about you being happy. It is about you being free. You've got to be able to address questions like this. I mean, when, when I get this one, why would God not want somebody to be happy? The goal of the Christian life is not happiness. The goal of the Christian life is pursuing the God of the universe and being free. Love is love. Friends, I say, I say this. I'm not, I'm not intending to throw stones. But I want to say, if you're going to say that, how do you differentiate between Somebody who says, you know, I love somebody of the same sex. And somebody says, you know, I, I want to marry somebody in my family. You know, I want to marry multiple people. You know, I want to marry a child. I want to look at that and I want to say, no, God is love. 
and that the definition of love is not defining itself by itself. True love is what we see in the person of Jesus. That's what love is. Or we say things like this. We say, my body was made for this. My body was made to eat in and out every meal. I'm gonna say, if I live that way, folks, I'm gonna die very, very young. When somebody says, my body was made for this, that is just bumper sticker philosophy. We need to go deeper. So number one, Paul wants to tackle bad thinking. Number two, Paul wants to develop what, what I want to call sexual, a sense of sexual, a vision for sexual formation. And what that means is a lifelong journey, a lifelong journey, a lifelong journey of being sanctified over a course of an entire life. Paul, Paul here, look, notice this. Whenever Paul talks about sex, it's interesting. Whenever Paul talks about sex, he always brings up the resurrection. He does it here, in fact. He says, notice, uh, by the power, he's quoting them. He says, by this power, God raised, uh, sorry, he quotes them. He says, you know, you think your body's gonna die, it doesn't matter. But then he says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. So he talks about sex and then he brings up the resurrection. And, he, and there's a reason why he brings up the resurrection because for Paul, he understands that human beings, when they die, that's not the end of their story. That's not the end of their life. That what you do in the body actually matters forever. When Jesus resurrects from the grave, he still has scars on his body. What we do in the body matters for Paul. I often get asked, will, will we have our tattoos in heaven? And the answer is the good ones. <laughs> but the bad ones will be just annihilated in the glory of God. We are told that when we enter the presence of God, he will wipe the tears from our eyes. What does that imply we will still have in heaven? Eyes. <laughs> You'll have a body. And, and that is to say that when the reason Paul brings up sexuality and then talks about resurrection is he wants you to see that sex is not just about the act of sex, that actually sex and human, sexu human sexuality and your faith to God are interconnected. They are interwoven. You don't get to say, this is my sex life over here and this is my faith life over, faith life over here because they're all one and the same. You worship God through human sexuality and your human sexuality is oriented towards God. There are only two times, this is fascinating, there are only two times that Paul uses the word flee in the, in the letter of 1 Corinthians. He says, flee sexual immorality and flee idolatry. Because for Paul, your sexuality is intended to reflect the God you worship. Idolatry is the worship of other gods or anything that might be even good. Run away from it and run away from sexual immorality. That word fuego, a really interesting word, the word fuego, it means flee, escape, shun, run away from. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked uh, by a young couple who's about to get married, you know, like how far can we go before like, like we hit the line? 
Like, what's the, what's the line? Like, is the kissing, is it like the touching? Is it like, well, is it the, it was just, it's so interesting to me that so much of our conversation about sexuality is about how close we can get to sin without getting burned. And if that is our mentality, if we're just like inching, like I'm just gonna, I'm, just, I'm, I'm still two inches away. I'm not sinning yet. What is Paul's approach? What is Paul's approach? His approach is this. Don't nudge up to sin, run away from it. Flee. Pornography. Um, it is easy, I know this. The numbers are staggering, friends. The numbers are staggering. It is easy to think, you know, a few images on Instagram that are titillating, but there's no sex. It's not, it's, they're not naked. They're still wearing clothes, and, but, but man, they're gorgeous. I understand the temptation to think it is okay to get somewhat close without, without crossing over to sin. And I think if Paul was in the room, he would say, if that is your mentality, you've missed the boat. The goal of the Christian life is not to get close. It's to run from it. Run from it. Because Paul, he knows the dangers, the dangers of human sexuality when they're not used appropriately. I have never once in my life met somebody who's in therapy because they lost a ping, ping pong game. Because friends, a ping pong game doesn't have any meaning in, in all the real scope of life. But I know hundreds of people in counseling because human sexuality was used in the wrong way. Paul wants to say, run from sin. Run from sin. Our attitude in our own life for the rest of our human existence is not to be afraid of sex, but it is to take Paul's commandment seriously. Run. Run from it. And the third thing Paul is going to say, and by the way, when you think about your own sexual formation, and when I mean sec by sexual formation, I mean your lifelong journey of God redeeming those stories in your life, of God bringing healing. I would say, first of all, know your story really well. Get into your story. I'm 42, and I'm just now starting to get into my story. And I gotta tell you, there's some deep wounds in my childhood that God is meeting me in, and I'm so grateful, but I wish I would have gotten into my story earlier. Get into your story. Get your head into books that have a really high view of the, of the Bible, but a very compassionate understanding towards humans. Read a lot of good books. I'd say this, include one or two people into your own sexual history. Invite people into your story. Not everybody, but a few trusted people. Be willing to address sinful patterns early on. Don't wait until it becomes a full-out adulterous relationship or a full uh, addiction. Address stuff early, early, early on. And constantly invite the Holy Spirit into your life to help you see the things that you need to see. And the third thing I wanna say today is, is actually the role the community plays. Um, because ultimately, we can do four lectures. We can do four lectures on sexuality. At the end of the day, the healing process, the healing process takes place in a community of people on the ground who are walking together. This community plays a role in bringing healing to people. He, Paul uses this language. You notice this. He says, you know, your bodies are like, the, the, uh, t like temples of the Holy Spirit. Your bodies bear the Holy Spirit inside of them. Isn't that, that's powerful language. Your bodies are where the Holy Spirit lives. 
And, and then he says, You're, you together are a temple unto the Lord. He says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, you together are a temple unto the Lord. As you come together, the Holy Spirit dwells in this place and brings healing. That you together as a community play a healing role in people's stories and people's lives. When those kids come into church who are part of uh, your, your, who are coming in and, and, and being dropped off by their parents because they know the church can be trusted, I mean, they're going to bring all sorts of weird perspectives and ideas with them. But you get to be a place of healing for them. You get to be an environment where the Holy Spirit dwells and lives. Paul wants to make sure you understand this. Don't think you can make your sexuality something that's over here, but it's not gonna affect the rest. Because friends, we are holistic people and Paul has a sophisticated understanding of sexuality. Your sexuality is not something over here. It is a part of our, it is a part of our whole story. If I had an addiction to pornography somewhere over here, and I was up here teaching on this stuff and leading students on this stuff. Friends, I don't first of all know how I would be able to do that with a straight face. But I would say secondarily, the, the audacious idea that I could kind of limit my sexual sin to one part of my life and be out here. Doing, friends, we are holistic beings. We are holistic beings. Paul has a sophisticated understanding of the body. And that means this. I, I guess in a way I wanna say this. What that means for you is, is pl please, for the sake of the community, take your own sexual holiness seriously. And, and that as you walk into repentance and healing and you get honest about your stories and your struggles, that as you walk into healing, that actually God will begin to bless the community because you're walking in holiness. Don't separate your own journey from our journey because we're doing this together. And we are a temple unto the Lord. And every part of the temple matters to God. I, I want to I actually, um, for sake of classic me, you know, just, just classic me, there's so much more that I want to say. Oh, Lord, Lord have mercy. How do we actually create a community of healing? Let me outline a few ideas and then I want to talk about one final thing and then we'll bring Pastor Billy up to take all your questions. <laughs> uh, I, want to, I want to mention, uh, first of all, how can we be a, a community of healing? Number one, it is important, redeemers, that you and I embody a space where people can freely confess their brokenness and be loved in their brokenness. And that we create space for confession here. It's interesting when James says, confess your sin one to another. He says, do it so that you'll be healed. It's interesting. He doesn't say so that you'll be forgiven. He says, do it so you'll be healed. Because it turns out there is healing in being able to confess your brokenness. And friends, if we cannot bear our brokenness to the church, we'll have to take it somewhere. I would invite you, I am not saying to bless and baptize anybody's sin but I'm saying this, whenever somebody confesses sexual sin in the church, it is a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit. I was at Asbury University just four weeks ago, five weeks ago. No, three, two months ago. I have my, date. my wife's gonna watch this and go, get your dates right, bro. <laughs> there was a revival at Asbury last year. Did you know this? 
You know how the revival started? I found this out just two months ago. The revival started because a bunch of students started coming up to the front, got on their knees, and confessed their addiction to pornography. That is what the church must make room for, is that we are a confessional space where broken people bear their brokenness to the living God. And thank Jesus when we confess our sins, he forgives. Create space for that. I would also encourage you, when it comes to sexual sin, be cautious to not like create a hierarchy that there's one worse than the other. I wanna say, you're all sinners. And every single one of you bear in this room some part of your story that is broken and unfinished. And yes, there are more some sins that are more destructive than others. We all pay consequences for our decisions. I understand this. But be cautious, be cautious to say, be cautious to say that some sexual sins require some sort of, I don't know, I, I'm trying, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to caution you in your own psychology and your own thinking to over-stigmatize some things and overlook other things. Friends, sin is sin. And ultimately here, if we're going to create a confessional space, making room for people in whatever sin they bear is important. Make ample room for people to be able to engage their own stories. Confront those, I love this, confront those with unnamed sin and comfort those with named sins. When somebody has named their sin, be very generous and loving. But when somebody is unwilling to address it, that needs confrontation. Have a long-term approach. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna be transformed overnight. It takes time. And grace, grace, grace. Thank God for grace. First Corinthians. Um, you know, uh, prostitutes. That's a weird sentence to start with. Prostitutes. You ever read this? Where Paul says women should cover their heads. You ever read this? It kind of feels a little uncomfortable. <laughs> what do you mean here, Paul? What's going on? Why would Paul, in the ancient city of Corinth, this is 1 Corinthians 11, why would Paul tell women, and only women, to cover their heads when you come to the church? Why? Why is that? Our best guess, our best guess, is we know there were about seven temples in ancient Corinth, seven temples where there was something called temple prostitution. And temple prostitution was this practice whereby you would go, if you were a man, you would go to the temple, you would pay some money, and you would be blessed by the gods, and you would have sex with a temple prostitute. And we know, uh, there's a whole book by this by N.T. Wright, we know that if you were a temple prostitute, the one sign to the world that you were a temple prostitute was you would have a shaved head. And that would be your sign. That's what you did. That was your, your job. Our best guess is that Paul is telling all the women to come to church and cover their heads for one reason. There were prostitutes who were meeting Jesus. And Paul is trying to create an environment 
where somebody could encounter Jesus and come in and not have everybody look down on them because of where God rescued them. I just want you to see that in the early church, the community of faith, the people that worship Jesus, it was a church where broken people were finding mercy and hope and grace. And I don't think it's too much to ask. Why can't we do the same today? Pastor Billy, would you come on up, please? Um, I think what we want to do um, is we, we, want to, we want to take a little bit of time and, and respond to some of your questions. Um, I have one up here, but we're going to hold on to this. Pastor Billy, come on up if you would, please. I said to my, said to my wife, there's nothing weirder than standing in front of a bunch of people you don't know and talking about one of the most intimate parts of your life. <laughs> so, but nonetheless, it's still important. Can we, can we do some Q&R? Yeah, let's do Q&R. Yeah. By the way, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, let's give yeah. AJ some appreciation for his teaching. Okay, so um, yeah, guys, we're going to do some Q&R. So uh, do you want to do the question that we were given first? Yeah, uh, yeah it's juicy. Yeah, let's do that one. And then uh, yeah. Jeff will come by at the microphone in just a yeah. second. And by the way, my encouragement to you would be ask the hard question. Don't keep it light. <laughs> In light of that, I grew up being taught that porn is the same as cheating on your spouse. How should a spouse treat or handle a spouse who is into porn? And you've agreed to tackle this perfectly. Did I? I did? Now that's a really great question. And what we think is that this is partially taken from the Beatitudes, right? So Jesus was teaching uh, in the Sermon on the Mount about uh, different issues that just touch us all. And he's talking about lust. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. And so we think that uh, perhaps uh, where this question is coming from is possibly rooted in, the, in that passage in the Beatitudes. And so, and it would make sense, right? In some ways, it would make sense that if a person uh, looks at pornography and lust, that it's the, the equivalent is, is adultery. And yet, it's not the same. It's not the same at all, uh, is it? Uh, of course, sin is sin. Sin separates us from God. I think it was in James 2.10 that says, uh, for anyone who keeps the whole law, all the law, and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all the law. And so in some regards, sin does separate us from the Lord, right? That's theologically true, and this is why we need a Savior to... Um, to cover our sins so that we're made right with the Lord. Uh, so in some regards, sin is sin, and then this is true. But we also know that not all sins have the same temporal uh, consequences. And certainly, 
someone who, who looks at porn, the, the consequence is very different than someone who engages in full adultery. And so we don't treat them the same in that regard uh, from a pastoral perspective. Uh, so we also need to keep in mind that right above this, is, is this making any sense? See, I'm, this is, I'm not a professional at this Q&A stuff. We also, we also know that in the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, it's not right before that, Jesus said, if you get angry at someone, that's like you murdered them. And, and we, we know that there's a big difference between committing the act of murder and just being angry with someone. I mean, if this is true, then we should all be in jail a billion times for just driving on the freeway uh, in the last 10 days. So, uh, so we cannot treat them uh, practically the same, although theologically there is, there is obviously a lot of truth to sin is sin. Does that, does that make any kind of sense at all? Can, can I interject? Of uh, course, can, please can I, save me. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Not no, in the no, salvation no. sense, just no, no. on the stage. Check. Um, when Jesus says this, um, f- first of all, my hunch when I read this, my hunch is, a couple, couple things to just, just notice. So n- notice that Jesus says this, this whole thing about body and hell. Body and hell. Isn't it interesting that hell is described as a place where the body is? In the same way that resurrection is the place where the body is. And, and there's, a, there's a sense in which, like, what we do in the body has eternal consequences on both levels. Both for resurrection and for judgment. So there's, there's a level of that that's interesting. I also find it interesting that Jesus here is talking to men. And, and by the way, the context here is there's a bunch of guys listening. Because he says, if any one of you looks at a woman lustfully, who's he talking to? He's talking to the dudes. And I, I, I don't know. I find it interesting that Jesus does not blame women for what is going on in the male heart. Because the issue here is about the human heart. And we know it's about the human heart because if you were to cut out your right eye because it causes you to stumble, what eye could you still use? Your left eye. If your right hand causes you to stumble and you cut it off, what do you still have? Your left hand. This is not about body parts. This is about the brokenness of the human heart. You could literally cut body parts off and still have a broken heart. My hunch is Jesus is indicting every single one of us. And that this is a universal indictment. He is not pointing to a few people. He is saying the human heart is warped towards adultery and that we all, we are all falling under the judgment of what Jesus is saying here. Not one of us can be able to say that and say we have never broken what Jesus said there. It's universal. I think when I read this question, I think the problem is, and I get the the sense of the question, that this is for somebody who maybe has a husband who is unwilling to acknowledge that pornography addiction and use is wrong and a sin. And I would treat that fundamentally different than I would with somebody who's fighting their heart out to repent and be holy. 
Because friends, when, when you pastor young people who are new in marriage, it is very normal for you to have to address patterns that are unhealthy in order for the marriage to be healthy. And when there, when the, here's how you know the win is happening, is when the conversation is happening and there is a fight going on. It's when the fight stops that things get really bad. And so my counsel would be, friends, pornography is absolutely not God's design, it is sin, hands down. But the question is, is the person wrestling with it or is the person giving into it? just capitulating. And if it's full capitulation, that's very dangerous. Yeah. That's very dangerous. Yeah, we would, we, would, we would organize our help differently in that regard. Absolutely, depending on the posture of the heart. Right. Yes. The numbers, by the way, can I give you the stats on, on pornography use? Um, and by the way, I'm so tired, in the name of Jesus, please hear me. I'm so tired of pornography being cast as a male-only issue. It is a human issue. And the numbers are astounding. Uh, I think it was the last numbers are 87% of 21-year-old men once a week. 68% of 21-year-old women once a week. Pornography use. That, that's, I mean, that's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking. If it's even remotely close. And it does absolutely affect a marriage. It impacts a marriage in 100%. very negative ways, yep. uh, obviously. And um, yep. it's a misuse of... of Everything good about sex in a marriage. Yes. For the, oh gosh, I'm almost, the Holy Spirit's like, I, I think the Holy Spirit just nudged me. Make sure to give some hope here. Okay. For the person in the room who is wrestling with these issues, number one, Jesus beat death and you, there is hope through this. Do not give up. Simultaneously, maybe one of the most important things you can do is to get some trusted Christian in your life that you can start to talk to about this because when it lives in the dark, it gets worse. And we do have a group for this very uh, dilemma, yes. this, this struggle. We have a group for this. Yes. And um, yes. It's, I think it, the session started a little while ago, but uh, our, leaders, our leaders are fantastic in this. Yeah. It's it's uh, a high degree of anonymity mm. and, uh, and trust and safety. Yes. And, and we, we offer this ministry because it is so pervasive. And I just want to remind everyone here that we do have a group for this. Absolutely. And it's fantastic. And yep. uh, we can get you more information on that if you, if you just, just reach out to one of us. Yep. And um, again, which is confidential, one of the staff. Marvelous. Praise the Lord. And, uh, and, and our Celebrate Recovery ministry, which, by the way, guys, is booming. I'm not sh- sure if you're aware of this, but... Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Our Celebrate Recovery ministry meets on our big groups uh, on Wednesday down in the ministry center. And a couple weeks ago, I think Dawn said we had like 180 people there, uh, which is like, that's a big church. I mean, they're having full-on church there. And then uh, the breakouts for... Um, uh, the ministry, the, the ministry programming are happening, and what's what's really good for us to all be aware of and educated, and then know even maybe for some of us personal reasons is addictions of all types are are treated, are worked on, and addressed in CR. So it's not just drug addiction; it's addictions of all types, including yes. addictions to uh, pornography. Yeah, incredible! What a resource! Yeah. yeah. Let's do some questions. Yeah. 
Yeah, Jeff, go, go for it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Hey, um, my question is a simple one with probably a very complex answer. Um, kind of goes back to what you're saying, AJ, as far as being in a situation where you feel like there is no correct answer. Yes. Um, so I have a friend who's in a same-sex relationship. Mm-hmm. Recently they got engaged. Uh, I'm assuming my wife and I will be getting an invite to the wedding. Yep. And I feel very split on yes. what to do. Um, yep. Part of me feels like you be there and you show love for these people. There's also the other aspect where I feel like if you show up, does it, you know, is it, are you supporting it? Um, that sort of thing. So what is your... Yep answer on attending same-sex marriages. Can I take the first stab and then you can film yeah. and film that film? Uh, that. No, yeah. I want to go first. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you go okay. first. Okay, okay, okay. Go. Go. I don't even want to be up here. I only did this because so you funny. asked so, so nicely. Funny. So funny. Okay. So, so having been in a similar position, and I just want to empathize with the situation that you find yourself in, um, because uh, that, that's like, I, I call it a gray space in our discipleship. Again, I just, I just want to tell, like, 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 Paul, why didn't you write that letter? Just, just you know, write the letter, man. Because like, you can't, can't think about our needs 2,000 years ago, you know? Um, we, we have to. We have to stick to Scripture. And, and that, is, that becomes our way of discerning these sorts of moments. And there are times that I would say to somebody that if, if you were to go to a same-sex wedding, okay, if you were to go, that your presence is an implicit endorsement of what's going on. It, you don't even need to say it. It's just implied that, that, you, that, you're, that you're like, yes, I'm all for this. And I would say, if your presence is an implicit endorsement, I would just say, be cautious about sending messages that you know you cannot morally stand behind. And yet at the same time, one of the greatest opportunities I had, we didn't go, but there was a, a, a same-sex couple when we were in Portland who totally knew where Quinn and I were. They knew that we were like totally on the other side of the conversation. And they invited us to their wedding. And she's not inviting us because we agreed. She invited us because we're her neighbor. Now I'll tell you, because we couldn't, we couldn't go. We actually were on a trip and we couldn't go. But in that instance, attending would have not sent the message I didn't want to send. It would have just sent the message, I'm your neighbor and I love you. I think this is why it's important. There's no one size fits all. And and I would just point out, by the way, the first miracle Jesus did, he went to a wedding and there's nothing in the text that says he went because he agreed with it. He just likes turning water into wine. (laughs) But isn't it interesting? The first miracle, they say the first miracle is Jesus turns water into wine. That's not the first miracle. The first miracle is that we have a God who people want coming to their wedding. And, and ultimately, I want to be the kind of Christian, whether I go or not, and I'm going to have to pray and discern, I want to be the kind of Christian that people want at their wedding. Because they know that when I show up, I don't turn water into wine, but I'm really good at loving people, that they would want me there. That doesn't mean I would go to everyone, and it doesn't mean that I wouldn't go. I need to be on my face before God. And in these moments, in these moments, if your conscience is defiled, you must listen to your conscience. You must listen to your conscience. I think that's how I'd respond. What would be your... I would respond... I would respond very similarly. Uh, I have to weigh each situation and consider the merits of, of every case and then decide uh, based on, on, the, on the details. Uh, for me personally, though... That's Okay. 
It's only when I'm talking that happens. That is a that great happens. ringtone, by the way, for whoever had that It's only ringtone. when I'm talking. It's a killer and I, ringtone. Killer I'm, ringtone. Is, that, is that the Holy Spirit telling me to shut up? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I <laughs> for me personally, as a, as a pastor, uh, if I show up to something, that says, that says a lot in that implicit message category than uh, if I were basically just a civilian, as it were, if that makes sense. And so we're, we're very cautious about this, uh, as just personally. Um, and so I, I, um, I probably would go to a lot less of those than, than maybe you all would. Yep. Because of the message it might send of endorsing uh, a particular sinful pattern of behavior yep. that is very destructive to the people's human flourishing under yep. what the Lord uh, would have for us. Yep. Can, can I offer a pastoral reflection that, that really, I think, you didn't ask this, but it, it's, a, it's clumped into the same thing. If you were a pastor and you were asked to do a same-sex wedding, um, would, you, would you do it? And my hope would be that your answer would be like, that violates something deeply of the nature of God. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. But what's weird to me is that often pastors will say no to a same-sex wedding, but they, they'll say yes to other weddings that they know are not that they know God is not behind. So here's my point. I don't be, do that. I be, say to no. I say no to weddings, hetero, hom, homosexual. Yeah, I'll good. say. Get I'll it. say no good. to all of them. Yes. No. Uh, good. Good. good to job. Any ones that are a pastor's heart, friends. Uh, uh, yes. um, no. no. The, the truth. Is, what I'm saying is, whatever you're going to do, be consistent in it. Yeah. And and if you're going to say no to going to a same-sex wedding because because you see it as as not honoring God. Just apply that same thing to other marriages that you're invited to and don't create a special category for just same-sex couples. Have a universal approach where you're not just creating a footnote of certain people that you judge extra. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, so, so just be consistent, be consistent. Uh, I could not with a clear conscience even come close to performing a, a, a same-sex marriage. Um, and that puts me in a really complicated place because I got a lot of students that are gay and I will be asked to go and... Um, and actually, more often than not, I have found that when I say no to a wedding um, because of my, my deeply held convictions about something, um, more often than not, people are really generous and understanding and not thrown a, 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 an anger. They're not mad about it. But that's just the people that I, the circles that I, I guess I run in. Yeah, okay. That's very good. Thanks. Yeah. AJ. Okay. Other questions or comments? Seriously? Come on, come on, give it to us. He's running. Oh, um, I'm nervous. So, you know, I want to go to that thing you brought up with that, uh, that trans child coming to the church. You know, yes. In, in a society that, that's more than willing to, you know, mutilate and sterilize a child for yep. the delusion. And they come to church. Isn't it us as Christians to tell that child the truth that, you know, you will never be a woman or the opposite sex, you know, and like mm. tell them about the facts of it instead of, you know, I, you said, you know, I, I do we use the preferred phone pronouns? You didn't like, you know, I, that's what I struggle with. Yes. I struggle with, you know, yes. like, what's your name because, by the way? My name's Ray. 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 And like, you know, Ray. cause Ray. you know, they get all that false worldly stuff out there, you know, as they come, if they're coming to church, they're looking for some truth. So yes. I, I just don't think as a church body we should like, like just indulge in their delusion with them. Uh -huh. You know, yeah, it's very powerful. 
Uh, it takes guts to ask a really important question like that, and I'm thankful that you did. And um, I bet, that's, I was gonna say, that's the elephant in the room, I think a lot of us. This is not abstract. Every single one of us now is facing questions about um, what pronoun usage do we use, what do we not use. Um, I know, this is actually why I asked you to come up here, because uh, on the transgender conversation, this has not been something that we uh, have been able to get on the same page about in terms of how we would publicly address this, and largely due to the fact that you have an eldership team right now that is giving time and energy to faithfully before God wrestling with this issue. What you need to know is you've got elders that are thinking through this and are doing it with clear consciences, with their heads in the Bible, and wanting to do what is right. So you need to know that. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm just, we, we are gonna talk, I hope this coming year we'll get a chance to talk more publicly about it. Um, but I, I just wanna say, it is, so as a university professor, you need to understand, as a university professor, in, in the university setting, if you do not utilize a pronoun that a, a student uses, you need to understand in most cases, a professor will lose their job. Um, and we're facing, uh, uh, public education teachers in this room are facing this right and left right now, that if you do not use the pronoun that a child chooses, on top of that, in many cases, teachers are being told, don't tell the parents that the child is going through what they're going through at school. I wanna say to the teachers in the room, I just feel like saying to you, you are awesome humans. And you are fighting and it is hard and you are facing some of the hardest questions our culture has ever put to Christians. And I want to tell you, God is with you, the Holy Spirit is with you, and that if the cross can defeat Satan and hell, this is not a problem for us. Whew, okay, I'm passionate. Okay, so with that said, with that said, as a teacher, okay, as, as a university professor, I, I don't really have, I think I have, I'm in a position where I would be told that I need to call somebody by their pronoun. And I think my response would be to a student, and it's happened many times, is I just decide to sidestep the whole conversation and call them by their name. And it actually turns out when you call them by their name, you don't have to talk about the pronoun issue because it's just a name and they're human. And that we are more than our pronouns. We're human beings with names. So I would say sidestep the whole thing and just call them by their name. I think that's what I'd say. Amen. Yeah. 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 It's a great question, question, Ray. And churches approach this in a variety of ways. And a lot of churches are, are, are talking about this and are establishing policy on this for their church. Obviously, we are not in the in the education arena, yes. yeah. we are a different entity and organization altogether as a church. Yep. And so when someone comes onto our campus, uh, we, we're not bound by the federal laws that, uh, that other organizations, most that are bound by. And so the, the, the ways that churches do this, guys, there's re relative, there's a two ways and there's a spectrum uh, in between these two sort of endpoints. But one is, Christians will say, uh, we will, Christians will say, or churches will say, we will use someone's preferred pronouns out of kindness and Hosp out of hospitality, hospitality a Christian hospitality um, perspective approach. And that is to say that from that approach, if we have a relationship with that person, then there can be future conversations, mm -hmm. gospel conversations that take place. But if there's no relationship at all, then there can be no future conversations. And so there's a missional side to it. 
there's an evangelistic side to it, and there's a kindness side to it. So that'd be one approach for pronoun usage within church. And then the sort of opposite side would be uh, that is um, that is that is that it, that that isn't very satisfying for Christians to uh, to live in an untruth with a relationship. In other words, all healthy relationships are based on truth. And how can we as believers even consider basing a, a relationship on uh, with someone on on, on a false premise, uh, on a false premise, which would be. Uh, someone denying their biological sex, how God made them to be. And there's, um, there's a spectrum there. Also, there's on that side, there would be, and it's plus it's breaking the ninth commandment, which says you shall not uh, bear false witness against your neighbor, against your neighbor. And, uh, and so it, it's lying to your neighbor to, uh, to go along with a falsehood. Uh, that is not in a, rooted in objective reality, and so those are sort of the the, the 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 guardrails, if you will, on either side. And so churches land on that. And so where do we land? Is is would be the next question. Is and um, that's something that the elders are are discussing and praying through uh, currently. And we hope, as AJ said, to to sort of land on this. I'm not a big. I'm not a big proponent of compelled speech, of forcing someone to say something. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big, huge fan of that. Uh, anybody with me on that? Yes. Um, you, yes. you clap for him. Nobody's clapping yes. for me, man. What's going on? Oh, no, I'm celebrate you. Thank you. I'm just really, this is like so out of my comfort zone. You're doing um, a great job. This is phenomenal. It's great. So uh, I, I think we're probably not going to force people to say things per se, when it comes to that. But you may have some follow-ups on this, but uh, let me just say, if we could move to a different topic, not to dodge the issue, we're, we're working on this right now. It's just that we're, we haven't necessarily, uh, as an elder team, kind of landed on a specific spot within that spectrum. So hopefully this helps you to know sort of where the boundaries are of the discussion, where some Christians have landed on this. Uh, uh, Preston Sprinkle would be someone who's landed on the hospitality side. And then Rosaria Butterfield would be an author who's landed more uh, on the other side. And those are both authors on your sheet. And so there is a spectrum of, uh, of, of just approaches yep. from evangelical Christians yes. on this. Yes. When, I was, uh, when I was 12 years old, I was completely convinced as a little white kid that I was going to be in the NBA. Seriously? 100%. Wow. 100%. And I literally built my life on it. I, built, I, I was like, I'm going to be uh, with the Portland Trailblazers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to beat this little guy. And my who, mom... Who was your favorite Trailblazer? All of them. What is like the, Clyde Drexler? Clyde, Terry, little, Kevin uh, Duckworth, the whole... Oh, yeah, Kevin. The, the, all, the awesome whole, guy. The whole hot mess. I loved them all. I was convinced I was going to be an NBA uh, uh, star. And my mom, it was not until last year, said to me that one of the hardest things about raising me was she didn't want to break the news that I wasn't going to be in the NBA. <laughs> because I was so convinced. And she, I remember when she told me, I was about 14, and I remember her saying, I love you. You're going to need to do something else. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's funny. There are kids who are being taught today 
that if you don't agree I'm gonna be in the NBA, I'm cutting you off as my parent. And that is so heartbreaking to me. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not shaming any trans person in this room and I'm not changing, shaming anybody in this room who has a, a family member or somebody who's wrestling through this, but that we have gotten to the point where we have the inability to love a parent who maybe disagrees. If love cannot overcome disagreement, then we don't love. And I, I love that my mom told me, you're not gonna be in the NBA. I love that. At the time, I hated her for it. But I needed somebody to say, here's, here's what happens actually. And it, there's a whole movement right now of detransitioners who are now mad at their parents and counselors and pastors for not speaking truthfully to them. And so if we just think an all out yes is going to serve our kids, I don't think that's the answer. But I also don't think just shutting down the conversation and saying, I'm not gonna listen to you is gonna help either. It's like we need the Holy Spirit, man. It's like we need we the do. Holy Spirit. The gender dysphoria is a real, it's a real, a thing. real it's psychological a real disorder. Thing. Guys, it is. And what we, what we don't know is in each specific case are people sort of jumping on uh, a wave uh, of popularity or they're reaching, they're, they're reaching out for help uh, for some kind of identity or a community or if there's genuine gender dysphoria happening. The, and each situation is different. There, you, you, I have a, we have a, uh, we have a, in Eugene, uh, one of my friends, 15-year-old son said to me, um, said he's, he's just a Christian, he thinks girls are cute, he's normal, like just normal like 15-year-old kid, he thinks girls are cute. And he said at my school, you are weird now if you just like the opposite sex. Like that makes you weird now. And he talked about, like, I don't even know how to talk about the fact that I like girls now because it's so normative. And I, there is a level uh, at which these are teenagers just doing what teenagers do. Being cool matters. And I'm not saying all gender dysphoria is an attempt at social power. But we are seeing in our, we are seeing with kids what happened when I was a teenager? Just a different thing. <laughs> when I was a teenager, it was a very different thing. But now it's a very different thing. So, and teenagers just need a lot of grace. But man, I'm glad somebody told me I wasn't gonna be in the NBA. I'm really grateful. Can you imagine me at 42 years old? Like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. I could have I made it. Or that movie Fletch with Chevy Chase oh, where he's dreaming he's a, a Laker. Movie. Oh, that's such a great scene. Such a great movie. I relate to that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Another question? Thanks for asking that. Uh, just to follow up, there's a uh, fairly famous pastor recently held a conference in the little town of Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> And you may be familiar with this pastor and, yes. and yes. with the firestorm that this created in the evangelical world. Um, he had, the, I think, the right intentions, and yet maybe he invited some folks. I don't know how it all happened. Do you, would you like to tease any of this out? And as it relates probably to Pastor Billy and the Redeemers, 
that when you enter into this discussion and the messiness and the pain, yep. uh, that there are some guiding lights out there. And you've already mentioned uh, Dr. Sprinkle, who is far and away the best guy out there. But there are some other voices um, kind of more on the affirming side. Do you want to yes. address any of that or do you just want to glance over it and say, next question? No, I'm good no, 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 that's too, too important to ask. Yeah. And, and by the way, um, I, I appreciate that you didn't name him because I, it's just sense of sensitivity. To, we don't, there's, there's a line where you're like, I don't want to gossip. So let's just say this. So Andy Stanley, okay, is a human being who should be, he's, he's a person and whatever is about to follow, he's not in the room to defend himself. And so whatever is said needs to be said with just sensitivity to the fact that he's not here to, to defend what, he, what, what I'm about to say. Um, he does have a big megaphone and, and we wouldn't be talking about it if he didn't have such a big megaphone, okay? But so with that said, and in being generous and, and giving the benefit of the doubt to Andy, um, if you were to ask me, is this, which is largely, it appears as though one of the largest American megachurches is shifting on, on the sexuality conversation and moving towards the affirming side, which is gonna have a big impact. Uh, it's gonna have a huge impact on the church and because a lot of churches are gonna follow suit. And, and so we shouldn't be blind to that and not, we also shouldn't be angry about it. And when I say don't be angry about it, don't make that the thing that gets you up in the morning. Jesus should get you up in the morning. That, that should be the thing that orients your life. That said, Stanley, Andy, for, for 10 years, has been going through a renaissance of how he understands the Bible. And years ago, when he began to question the authority of the Old Testament, anybody that is in the theology world could see what was coming. Because when you begin to question the authority of the Old Testament, it can't not affect everything else. And so I think my response would be, um, th this is just part of what happens when you begin to question whether the Old Testament is authoritative or not. And I, gosh, I wish him and the church so well, but I worry that the trajectory is gonna have a bigger influence than we're, than we're comfortable with. And it's going to, form, for us, it's going to require that we have, that we know what we think and have a good answer for what we think. And don't rely on bumper sticker theology. Friends, this is all God's invitation to get our heads in the Bible. What a gift from God. We got to know the Bible now. Not like back in the moral majority, we didn't need to know the Bible, but you got to lean on culture. You don't get to lean on culture anymore. It's a gift. We now have to know our Bible. So it's heartbreaking. It's sad. And when you look at the, 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 the people that spoke at the conference, it was one-sided. There was not one, I think there was one Orthodox perspective in a breakout, but none of the big speakers were on the, on the, on the orthodox side, which is heartbreaking. So maybe, I, we want to honor our time, but is there time for one more question? Or do we need to be done at 7.30? Oh, well, let me just, uh, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so, please forgive me. Yeah, I yeah, would just yeah. say uh, that yeah. with AJ, I, I'm saddened by this. Andy Sandy was someone that I really looked to for many years um, in my younger Christian uh, ministry life. And um, I, I met him. Uh, my last church hosted him. He and Craig Rochelle, uh, who's another uh, pastor of a large church in America, uh, for 
a series of conferences called Catalyst One Days or Catalyst Conferences where the topics were not theological. They were more uh, Christian leadership. There was some incredible material. Uh, and yet when Irresistible was published, which is the book that, that uh, AJ uh, referenced with respect to uh, Andy's view to, for us to detach ourselves from or unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament is when I, I stopped looking at uh, North Point and Andy Stanley as a person that I would draw from. Uh, and so this is yet another step in that direction of uh, theological liberalism or the progressive side uh, of, of, sexual, of, New, of New Testament sexual ethics. And so we're, uh, we're just saddened by it, and yet we, we've seen this coming, and uh, we're aware of it, and we're paying attention, and we, we just are very cautious about what fountains we drink from uh, as Christian leaders uh, just because now someone says they're a Christian or even used to be very solidly evangelical doesn't necessarily mean that we will automatically just absorb or drink or draw from uh, from their teaching and material. And so we're, we're very cautious about that. It's, it's harder to do that today than it was 20 years ago. Let's pray. Come and pray. God, thank you. Thanks for this night. And thank you for leading your church. Um, would you go before us, be behind us, above us, below us, all around us? Would we guard the light faithfully? Would the lampstand be found on our heads? <clears throat> and as we do, we want to pray for the next couple of years that because so many people are getting saved in this church, we have a lot of critical questions to have about how we handle this as a church because of the good issue that people are meeting Jesus. Bring people, God. And as we do, would we love well? Jesus, heal. May your kingdom come. Jesus, come soon. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Okay. AJ, thank you so yep. much. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Tremendous. Thank you.